Would you bow with me once more as we prepare to hear from God's word? Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks to us uh, in every situation, no matter where we are. And so I pray simply that you will open our, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive. And I pray as well, Holy Spirit, that you will speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series on one of my favorite topics, the church. I never get tired of talking about the church because the church is, first and foremost, the most important institution on earth, if you can call it an institution. In fact, it's far more than an institution in the sense of a human organization, Instead, it is a divinely mandated organization. It is the body of Christ. It is something so much greater than any man-made institution could be. And it is at the front lines of God's purposes on earth. All flow through his church. Now, maybe here on Sunday morning, being in a church building, so to speak, and if I were to tell you, you are part of the church, you think, yeah, woohoo, I'm part of the church. You know, I managed to get out of bed this morning and say, yeah, I'll go to church this morning. But maybe you didn't feel all that excited about it. And you thought, yeah, what's the big deal about being part of the church? And this morning, I hope to begin to instill in us once more the importance, the incredible privilege of being a part of the church. That rather than it being a shrug, shoulder, sigh, yeah, I'm a part of the church, that we would actually be excited about our place in the body of Christ as a part of his church. So that is my intent and hope for this morning's first part of the series, Born in Adversity, Destined for Greatness. In the year 1892, a structure was built for the World's Fair Exposition that was greeted with disdain by the citizens of the city and called a monstrosity that was too grotesque to see. They demanded that it be torn down the instant the exposition was over. The local newspapers also had a field day criticizing it and printed many letters from angry citizens. One such letter signed by many notable celebrities of the time read like this. For the next 20 years, we shall see stretching out like a black blot the odious shadow of the odious column built up of riveted iron plates. Yet from the moment... Its architect first conceived of it. He took great pride in his masterpiece, and he loyally defended it from those who wished to tear it down. He knew deep down that it was destined for greatness. The architect's name was Alexander Gustav Eiffel, and today the structure that bears his name, the Eiffel Tower, holds the record as the number one most visited and most photographed tourist attraction in the entire world, with as many as 7 million people visiting it per year. It has also been voted as one of the architectural wonders of the modern world and is considered one of the most recognizable landmarks on the planet. Now, in the same way that Alexander Eiffel believed that his structure was destined for greatness and that he loyally defended it against those who hated it, who would rather see it taken down and destroyed... I am struck with the parallels of our Lord Jesus Christ and his loyalty to another structure, 
one that he constructed, he ordained and defended with his own blood, and that is the church. But make no mistake about it, Jesus' church is not a structure built with walls, stained glass, and steeples. The church is instead a living organism, best described as his body, which is made up of all those who believe in Jesus' name and follow in his footsteps. The Greek word that we use to translate into our English word church, the Greek word is ekklesia, meaning the gathering. And so we see that the original term of the word church, ekklesia, the gathering, was not referring to a building as such. It was instead referring to the gathering of God's people. And so wherever the people gathered, there was church. In fact, the early church did not have designated structures like we have today. No, they met in people's homes primarily or in out-of-the-way places, in woodlots, if they were being persecuted. So wherever the people of God gathered, there was church. And so it's better for us to think of the term church in the terms of people rather than in the terms of a building like this one. I know we always use it as shorthand to say, I'm going to church, referring to this structure standing at 66 Bay Avenue, but in fact, we're talking about a structure, not the church itself. Yes, the church is here this morning because we are gathered, but if this building were to burn down this week, say lightning struck this building this week and it burned to the ground, would this church cease to exist? What would we do next Sunday? Would we gather on the lawn? Would we figure out somewhere else to go? I bet you we would, because it's not about the building, it's about the people, the gathering the church, and that is the body of Christ, a living organism, one that can move and and is constantly called by God to be going out in the name of Christ, bearing the mission. You see, too often when we think of church in, in the terms of a static building, we start to become static in our faith and mission. We sit still because we think, well, it's all about one place and people just need to come to us. But Jesus said, no, go into all the world. We are to be dynamic in our mission and not static. And so we need to think of the church in those terms as the body of Christ. Much like the Eiffel Tower, the church too was born in humble circumstances. Her founder was born not in a hospital but in a barn. His first crib was a manger. His first visitors, smelly shepherds. His first journey was not home, but instead it was to flee in the night to a foreign country as a fugitive from a murderous tyrant. His upbringing was not in a temple or in a palace, but in a carpenter's workshop. His home, not the city of Jerusalem, but the small, out-of-the-way town of Nazareth. And then the young carpenter turned rabbi emerged from the backwater region of Galilee, somewhere where people said, does anything good come out of Galilee? And then he and his unlikely band of 12 ragtag disciples who didn't make it under any of the other rabbis common fishermen. No one anything expected anything of, he chose. And then he goes about healing people and preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. But instead of receiving acclaim and a welcome, the young upstart faced ridicule and opposition from the very beginning. His own townsfolk of Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff. The religious establishment opposed him at every single turn even accusing him of performing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, or, in other words, Satan. And then from there they went on to plot his murder. 
To make matters worse, after three plus years of following Jesus, those 12 disciples showed very little promise. And when push came to shove, they either betrayed him, abandoned him, denied him, or doubted him. And then after he had proven to them, really and truly, that he had risen from the dead, just when the disciples think, now we're really about to get to work establishing this kingdom, and we're going to become kings and rulers, Jesus leaves them. He ascends to heaven. And in doing so, he entrusts his fledgling church and the mission of spreading the good news of the gospel into their hands. To outsiders, those disciples must have seemed like incapable blunderers. Uneducated fishermen, they called them. They were traitorous tax collectors amongst them, doubters and zealots. Doomed to failure and soon to be forgotten as nothing more than another footnote in history. That's what it would have looked like to anyone looking on in that time. Even to us looking back on it today. But Jesus, the chief architect of the church, his church... He knew his body was destined to change the world. For once empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, those ragtag disciples went out and changed the world forever. Yes, they were pressed on all sides, but not crushed. They were perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, yes, but not destroyed. For the life of Christ in them and the hope of eternal life with him was greater than than the worst death that man could inflict upon them. Fed to wild animals in the arenas, stoned to death, crucified, burnt at the stake, boiled in oil, beheaded, torn asunder. The more they suffered and died for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, the more the church grew and spread. Like a living vine, its branches climbed all the barriers that were placed before it. And where one branch was cut off, another grew to take its place. And even as the once seemingly invincible Roman Empire crumbled into dust around it, the church flourished and spread even further. Then even through the Dark Ages, as the temptations of pride and greed and power began to corrupt the institution of the church, the true church, the body of Christ, was reborn once more as men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli pointed people back to the truth of the scriptures alone, and that it is not the church who saves, but Jesus Christ. It is by faith in Christ alone that we are the church. And so once more, those who believed in the name of Jesus Christ, those who followed in his footsteps, were persecuted and killed. But once more, the church flourished and spread even further. This time it birthed the great missionary age that took the gospel of Jesus Christ across the oceans to the Americas, to the dark corners of Africa, to China, and to Southeast Asia. Amongst those reformers of that day was a Roman Catholic priest named Menno Simons. Menno Simons self-admittedly joined the priesthood out of personal ambition, arrogance, and greed. He took his charge very carelessly, and only used it to his personal advantage. However, in beginning to study the scriptures for himself, he began to have nagging doubts about the doctrines of the church, such as transubstantiation and infant baptism. Then an event occurred that would radically change the direction of Simon's life. 
on their way to the city of Munster, a group of reformers known as the Melchorites took shelter in a monastery. Then on April 7, 1535, they were attacked by imperial troops and refusing to fight back, 300 people were slaughtered. Among them was a man named Peter Simons, believed to be Menno Simons' own brother. For the next nine months, Simons wrestled with the scriptures and with God, until finally on January 30, 1536, Simons made his choice. He abandoned the priesthood, along with its power, prestige, and luxuries, and he chose to live as a simple believer amongst the peasants. According to his own confessions, Simons had experienced a spiritual resurrection, and he dedicated himself from that day forward to the reading and reflecting on Scripture, and over the next 25 years practiced a clandestine ministry. By 1542, the authorities had labeled Simon Simons as the leader of a heretical sect, and they placed a king-sized bounty of 500 gold florians on his head. And despite this massive bounty, one that would have made anyone wildly rich, it would have been like winning the, the Lotto 649 lottery of that day. Despite this, he was never arrested. Believers were willing again and again to die rather than betray their pastor. Merely having received Simons into one's home was enough grounds for a death sentence. Simons moved about constantly, rarely staying longer than one night in any one place, and never saying where he was going next. One man named Jan Kloss was beheaded in the town square for simply printing 600 copies of one of Simons' writings. Another lady named Elizabeth Dirks was found to have a New Testament in her home, and after being interrogated and tortured for 12 days to betray Simons, she refused, saying only, I pray God may grant me the strength not to betray him. Her prayer answered, they finally gave up and drowned her in a bag. And Menno Simons' ministry continued. The church grew and spread from Holland to Germany to Poland to Russia, and from Russia to the world, including this nation of Canada. And today, out of her oh-so-humble beginnings, the church is known to be on every single nation on planet Earth. Even in North Korea, which we hear so much about in the news today, even there, under the most oppressive regime, consistently ranked as the number one most difficult place on Earth to be a Christian, Today, reports still trickle out that the underground church is alive and growing in North Korea. Yes, they have to be careful because one story I heard this past week is that they route out or they, they, they find the parents who are believers through their children. And they'll do it through clever ways like holding up a Bible in a classroom and saying, I've got a game for you students this week, an assignment. Go home and see if you can find one of these books in your home. And sure enough, an innocent, naive child goes home, finds one of these books hidden away, brings it to school and says, Teacher, look, I found one. What's my prize? Well, the child's prize was going home that day, and her parents were gone, never to be seen again. That's what life is like in North Korea. And yet today, the church is still growing and flourishing. Like those vines coming up against a wall, does it stop or does it climb? And overcome. That is the nature of the church. 
As incredible as it sounds, according to the Pew Research Center, there are an estimated 2.2 billion people in the world today who profess the name of Christ. Now, of course, we could argue definitions and say how many of those are true believers in our sense of understanding of being born again. But even if we were to chop that number in half, that is still a whole lot of people. The church, which was born in such adversity and continues to be opposed around the world in so many different ways, was and is destined for greatness. But not greatness for her own sake. We must make this very clear. We don't become great in the sense of the world's understanding of that word for our own sake so that we can sit up here and beat our chests and say, look how great the church is. No, the church is destined for greatness to demonstrate to the world the greatness of the one who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not so that the church would be glorified, but so that God the Father would be glorified through us. Born out of such humble beginnings, God has again and again and again done great and mighty things through his body. You might even call it his specialty. In Matthew chapter 13 and verses 31 to 32, Jesus told this very simple parable. Reuben read it for us earlier. I'll read it once more. You can turn there with me if you like. Matthew 13, 31 and 32, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, of course, we know today that there are, in fact, seeds smaller than a mustard seed. But we must recognize that Jesus was using what the people of his day knew. And the mustard seed of that day was the smallest known seed commonly used at that time in Israel. And while we might consider the mustard plant to be more of a shrub, less of a tree, the variety that is specific to Israel can grow as high as 15 feet in optimal conditions. So 15 feet, that's a good height yet. You know, might even call that a tree. In in Israel, they did. Now, here we see a 15-foot tree is the greatest of all garden plants. He doesn't say it's the greatest of all trees, but the greatest of all garden plants. And so what Jesus was teaching here is that the good news of the gospel, like a mustard seed, starts out very small, tiny. You can barely see it. But once it's planted in someone's life, even without notice, once that tiny seed germinates in the heart and mind of an individual and shoots go forth and roots of faith go into the soil of Jesus Christ, it will then grow far beyond anyone's expectation or explanation. You see, no one expected Jesus' 12 disciples to amount to much. They said, they're uneducated fishermen. Who are they to teach us? No one expected anything of them. No one expected them to shake the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. No one expected a man like Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, to become Paul the evangelist, who wrote half the books of the New Testament. No one expected Menno Simons to renounce the priesthood and to spark a revival that still we represent under his name to this very day. 
I go back to thinking about Menno Simon sometimes, and I wonder, if he were to look at a church today like ours that bears his name, what would he think of it? I think he would be humbled. I think he would be blown away that his acts of obedience could have made such a difference in the ages and centuries to follow. No one expected another young man named Henry Shoemaker to found a Bible camp in the Turtle Mountains in 1947 let alone that it would be a success or that the camp would survive past a couple of years in this mosquito-infested, swamp-filled area. But you know what? Henry Shoemaker didn't care what people expected of him. He simply had a God-given burden and passion to see children reached with the love of Jesus Christ. And inspired by a vision to do that through the means of a camp setting, he went out to search for a suitable area. And so with the help of area farmers, including members of this congregation, the work moved ahead. Horses were used to clear logs. Canvas tents housed the campers. And once the outhouses were finally constructed, they were considered a luxury versus the holes and trees that they'd been using earlier. And some of you were there as this year Turtle Mountain Bible Camp celebrated its 70th anniversary. An incredible new lodge is standing. And as I think back to Henry Shoemaker, a man that none of us alive here today had the pleasure of knowing, when I think back to him, and if I were to bring him on a tour of Turtle Mountain Bible Camp today and show him the new lodge, I wonder what he would think of it all. I think he would be absolutely blown away that 70 years later after his vision, it's not only still in existence, it's flourishing. And that over 70 years, thousands upon thousands of children have gone through that camp have been exposed to the love of Jesus Christ, and many thousands of them have made first-time decisions to follow Jesus Christ, and many more made dedications to follow him with their whole lives. And I am one of them, and I know that many of you are as well. No one expected Henry Shoemaker to have such an impact on the world, and yet he did. You see, the lesson of the mustard seed is that out of humble beginnings, God can and will do great things for his glory. Now today, maybe no one really expects anything great of you. Maybe it's been that way your whole life. No one expected much of you. Or maybe you never expected much of yourself. Maybe today you feel as though your small actions of service for God don't make any difference in the grand scheme of things. Maybe you feel as though being a part of this church or participating in her life and ministry won't make one speck of difference in the big picture of eternity and God's plans and purposes. You feel so insignificant that what you do or don't do is of no consequence. But I wonder... If the tiny mustard seed could look at itself in the mirror and if it had a mind to think, do you think that mustard seed would see nothing more than the smallest and least important of all seeds? Or would it look in that mirror and see within itself the God-given potential to grow up into the greatest of all garden plants? Let me ask you, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see a mustard seed? Or do you see within yourself your God-given potential to do something great in the service of God your Father?
This is what God sees in us. He sees us not as we are, but as we will be. He sees in each one of us the potential he has placed to do great things in his service. Now, you might be thinking that you don't have enough faith to believe that it's possible that you could do anything great for God. But be encouraged to know that Jesus' 12 disciples faced that exact same doubt many times over. In Matthew 17, when they had attempted to cast out a demon from a boy and failed miserably, they went to Jesus and asked, Why couldn't we drive him out, Lord? And in verse 20, Jesus replied, Because you had so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as what? A mustard seed. Again, the reference to the mustard seed, the smallest thing. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see, it doesn't matter how small your faith is. What matters is this question and this question alone. How big is your God? Stop asking, how small is my faith? And instead ask, how big is my God? Because even the smallest speck of faith in the big, awesome, incredible God of heaven, creator and maker of all of the universe, it can move mountains. Because he is able. So let me ask you today, how big is your God? Is he big enough to use someone as small as you, someone as small as me, to do something important, something even great for his glory? Is he big enough to use the Clarny Mennonite Church to save and transform more lives through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Could God even use our collective faith Our collective mustard seeds, if we piled them all in a heap, could God use those to spark a revival in the town of Killarney? I believe that he is able. I believe that he is able to use us in spite of us. I believe that he is able to use us in spite of our often anemic faith, our often lukewarm convictions, despite our stumbles and struggles, despite our battles with the old flesh and sin, despite our doubts and our skepticism and our selfishness, I believe that God can and will use this church for his glory. Because that, my friends, is exactly what he has designed us for. So all we have to ask ourselves is one simple question. Do we desire this? I pray that we do, for this is God's will for us as a church collectively and for us individually. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 to 21 says this, now to him who is able, I love that line, what comes after it is even more incredible, but I love that line, to him who is able. It's not just that God's straining at the edge of his capacity. Oh, I wonder if I can do this. No, he is able, my friends. Whatever you are facing in your life, you're straining at the edge of capacity, wondering, am I able? Am I able to overcome this temptation? Am I able to overcome this sin? Am I able to reach my friend with the love of Christ? Am I able to do this in his service? Am I able? 
We rightly ask that question because when I look in the mirror, I realize Danny Greening by himself is not able. I love this line. He is able. We have to focus our attention not on we who are unable, but on he who is able. And now listen to the rest of it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we so often take for granted our position, our tremendous and privileged position as children of God, as members of the body of Christ. To show up on Sunday morning is something that's so easy, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, or don't go, depending on how we feel. But Lord, what you have programmed the church for, what you have designed her for, is so much greater than we can even imagine. And that it is your purpose and your intent that through us, your message would go forth to the nations, and that you would be glorified in us as we glorify you in our obedience. And so, Lord, as we look in the mirror and we see nothing but mustard seeds, I pray, Lord, that you would expand our vision and our ability to look in the mirror and see instead the God-given potential that you have granted to each one of us as we look to you who are able, that we would grow up in the faith, that we would mature and grow forth, and that through us, Lord, you will be glorified. And so I pray, Lord, that today you will increase our faith, mustard seed as it may be, to believe you, who are able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. And so here, Lord, what I can imagine, the biggest thing is a revival in this town, and so I ask for it, Lord, and I pray that you would use us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name.